Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. And so we are in week number six of our study in the book of Genesis. And we are all the way in the middle of chapter two. And we're going to kind of deviate now from chapter two. We're going to look at the idea of beasts in the book of uh, Daniel and maybe even the book of Revelation as well. And we're going to begin, if you guys have the notes, the script that I write at the beginning of the notes kind of is really the last several weeks has been more of a summary. Hey, here's where we've gone. And I know some of you have not been here every week. And so let's kind of read through that and set ourselves a context. And then we're going to go to, uh, well, Mark chapter four, but then Daniel chapter four and Revelation chapter seven, uh, Revelation chapter 13. So it says, we've seen in Genesis one, two, one, two, and three, that it establishes that the covenant God of Israel, the God who called him Abraham, the God who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, the God who revealed himself as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is the God who created all things. That's Genesis 2.4. And we've also known that God planted a garden in Eden. And the word planted is going to become important, maybe not for this set of classes, but sooner or later it will be. Planted a garden in Eden where he would dwell with his creation. Thus Eden was a temple. And later biblical writers affirm that the garden was on a mountain. And I give you some references there. It was also a place full of precious stones. And I give you some references there. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life. And from the garden, the river of life flowed and watered the earth. So Genesis 2.9 and Genesis 2.10. We've also seen that Adam and Eve were created to subdue the earth and to rule over the animals. And we discussed that last week. They're called to rule well. As they subdue the earth, they are reminded that the plants are given as food to the animals as well. Meaning when they subdue it, they can't just take it for themselves and leave nothing for the animals. Thus, they are not to rule for themselves alone. The creation narrative of Genesis 2 describes Adam and Eve not simply as gardeners, but also as priests. In fact, the word for their gardening in Genesis 2 was the word in Genesis 2.15 was the word for priests. Cultivate and keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. When these two words occur together, they refer either to Israelites serving God and guarding the, God's word, or to priests who keep the service of the tabernacle. And there's some references for you. Adam and Eve are to be one, and as such, they are to image God, who is himself one, John 17.21. Adam's naming of the animals, which we discussed, we didn't really discuss it last week, but we kind of read over it last week, was his first effort to rule. The problem is that Adam was not made to rule alone. He needed a helper, i.e. someone to come alongside and join him as an equal in the task of ruling and subduing. Of course, Adam couldn't be fruitful and multiply by himself was one of the key problems there. To rule well, Adam and Eve will also need the knowledge of good and bad or knowledge of the tree of good and evil, either way you want to call it. The question will be whether or not they trust God to give them such knowledge or if they will decide to determine good and bad for themselves. And we discussed the tree a, a number of weeks ago, and it seems likely that God would have given them a command to eat from it at some point in time, but right now the command was don't eat from it as a, as a test. This means that we may understand the biblical, the biblical conflict in terms of kingdoms. Is God the king, or will we attempt to rule ourselves? We know what happens. Humanity chooses to make its own rules. They determine to become gods themselves or God themselves. The Bible then follows the narrative of human history by turning this on its head. Instead of humanity ruling over the beasts, the beasts rule humanity, and humanity becomes the beasts. And that's what we want to get into tonight. So let's begin with Mark chapter 4. So Mark chapter 4, does somebody want to read verses 30 through 32? Yeah, I can read it. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. So the kingdom of God is like this mustard bush, and it's going to grow up and become a large plant, and the birds will nest in its shade. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So let's now go to the book of Daniel. And here's, and kind of, I'm going to give you like a big rough overview of the book of Daniel, not incredibly important that we go through and parse out all the, all the passages of it, but I just want you to see the theme that I said in the last paragraph of, of the script, and that is humanity becomes the beast or the beast rule over humanity. And it's kind of both and. So in the book of Daniel, the goal of the book is for God, for the, to encourage the Israelites that God's sovereign over all the earthly kingdoms. Now, Daniel's written during the time of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, in Daniel chapter one, Daniel and his buddies are taken to Babylon. So the Babylonian captivity is in the sixth century BC, just to give you a frame of reference if that helps you at all. The Northern Kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in the 700s or eighth century BC. Now about 125 or so years later, the Southern Kingdom of Babylon is conquered, the Southern Kingdom of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians. 
and they're carted off to Babylon. And that's where Daniel and his buddies are. And therefore, the goal of the book is to encourage them that, hey, God's still sovereign over all the earthly kingdoms, even though you guys are actually suffering in Babylon. Now, a simple look at the book of Daniel suggests that it has two distinct parts. And the first part is chapters one through six, and they're stories, that's the fill in the blank, of Daniel and his friends. So chapters one through six are stories of Daniel and his friends. And if you grew up in the church and you went to Sunday school classes, you probably know the stories of Daniel and his buddies, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the throne of the fiery furnace, Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. You, you're familiar with those. It's really funny because we teach the first six chapters of Daniel in our Sunday school classes that we never touch seven through 12 uh, in our Sunday school classes and for obvious reasons in some sense. Daniel's chapter. Okay, so these chapters are simple stories of faith in a hostile foreign settlement, uh, setting. Others have visions and Daniel interprets them. So some like Nebuchadnezzar will have a dream. No one can interpret the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what? I don't even want you to interpret the dream. I want you to tell me what the dream was and its interpretation. Oh, King, no one's ever asked that before. The way it works, oh, King, is you tell us the dream and then we tell us the interpretation. And they said, well, sorry, if you can't do it, I'm going to kill all the wise guys. And Daniel's one of the wise guys. And they said, hey, we got this guy named Daniel. Maybe he can do it. And sure enough, Daniel says, here's your dream. This is Daniel chapter two. Here's what your dream was. And here's what it means. Oh, Daniel, you're, you're like the greatest of all. So they're simple stories of faith in a hostile foreign setting, and others have visions and Daniel interprets them. Now, the second part is chapter seven through 12, and they're visions of Daniel, visions of Daniel. So the first six chapters are stories of, of Daniel and his friends. Seven through 12 are visions of Daniel. Daniel has visions and they are interpreted for him. So note the flip, how this is flipped. The first six chapters, somebody else has a vision and Daniel interprets it. Now, Daniel's the one having the visions, and someone else is interpreting it for Daniel. And these visions are obscure apocalyptic visions. There's these beasts and a bear with like ribs coming out its side. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? And that's why we don't teach Daniel chapter 7 through 12 in Sunday school classes, because nobody knows what it even means. And actually, it's meaning is easy when you figure out what we're going to tell you here in a, in a minute. Well, I wouldn't say easy, but it's, e it's easier. So that's kind of your setting for the book of Daniel. 12 chapters, first six are stories, seven, uh, seven through 12 are visions of Daniel. And we think of the book as two separate parts. But what I'm going to tell you is they're not two separate parts. They actually are interlocking. And here's the point. And that is this. The, the next line of the note says Daniel is more complicated than this. So chapter one, all the way through chapter two, verse three are written in Hebrew. And if you have Dan your, the book of Daniel open, Isaiah, mm -hmm. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you have your Bibles open at Daniel chapter 2. And the Chaldeans said to, to the, or the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Or is that no, no that's, that's all you need. So yeah. no, chapter 2, verse 4, the Chaldeans said in, in Aramaic, O king, live forever. And for some reason, it doesn't just say he said this in Aramaic. It's actually written in Aramaic. So the first chapter and all, verse, all the way through chapter two, verse three is all written in Hebrew. But all of a sudden, chapter two, verse four, not only quotes him speaking in Aramaic, it quotes him in Aramaic. And then it continues in Aramaic through chapter three and chapter four and chapter five and chapter six and chapter seven, all the way to the end of chapter seven. It's in Aramaic. Now, if you're not familiar with Hebrew or Aramaic, you might not notice because it's actually it's the same script. It's the same letters. It's the same handwriting. And then chapter 8 through chapter 12 are written in Hebrew again. So if you're not aware of this, right, the Bible's written in Greek and Hebrew, but it's actually Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Large portions of Ezra are written in Aramaic, and then this chunk of Daniel is also written in Aramaic. So that tells us, well, wait a second. Chapters 2, 4 through chapter, all the way, the rest of chapter 7 is in Aramaic. 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. And notice that the Aramaic bleeds into the second part of the book. I know it's if we want to separate the book of Daniel chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 12, that makes sense. There's stories of Daniel and his friends. There are visions of Daniel. Daniel interprets the visions. Daniel has someone else interpret the visions. Makes total sense. But all of a sudden now, the language in which the book was written doesn't let you do that. It says, no, the second part is connected to the first part. So we might think that 1 through 6 are separate and 7 through 12 are, are distinct parts, but then we realize they're actually connected by language. Now, actually, it's even more complicated. So the next line is this, Daniel as a chiasm, and the fill in the blank is chiasm. 
and it's spelled C-H-I-A-S-M. C-H-I-A-S-M. So it's a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is, let's say you have something like point A and then point B is indented and then point C is indented more. And then the next point is point B again. It repeats kind of the, the previous B and then the next point is point A again. So it makes this, you know, this arrow. And so A, B, C, B, A, that's a chiasm. So there's some famous chiasms, by the way, if you ever heard the phrase, do I love you because you're beautiful or are you beautiful because I love you? So it starts off with, I love you and then beautiful. And then it goes to beautiful and love you. Or of course, the most famous one is uh, I'm stuck on Band-Aid because Band-Aid stuck on me. I'm stuck on Band-Aid because Band-Aid stuck on me. Don't sweat the petty things and don't pet the sweaty things. I'll say it again. Don't sweat the petty things and don't pet the sweaty thing. Never let a fool kiss you or, ki or a kiss fool you. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. What's happening, and those are all examples of A, B, B, A. That makes sense? The A point is there, the B point's there, and then the next line repeats the B point first, and then the A point second. That's just a chiasm. Now, when I first heard of chiasms, I'm like, you know, I don't really think that's the case. You know, you can find a chiasm anywhere you want to go, and people can make it. I heard some really strange ones, like the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelations, a giant chiasm. I'm thinking... Oh, seriously? Yeah, you got this woman at the well, and then you got this heart at Babylon. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, dude, it was, it was way off. It was like not even close. But so people make up chiasms sometimes to kind of make it fit. And I found the literary structure of this book. But the reality actually is the biblical authors use them all the time, especially the prophets. And the key actually is it's got to be intentional. You have to be able to say, okay, this is pretty intentional. And in the book of Daniel, actually, it's very intentional. Chapter two, and see on your notes how I left chapter two on the left side of the screen, uh, is a dream about four earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar has that dream. Then you go very down to the bottom of it. Look at chapter seven. It's a vision of four earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom. Two and seven seem to be parallel. Chapter three is a story about Jews being faithful in the face of death. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Chapter six is a story of Daniel in the lion's den. Story of a Jew who is faithful in the face of death. So chapter four is a story of, of royal arrogance, which is humbled, and that's the, about Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter five is a story of royal arrogance, which, in which the king is humbled, and that's the king Belshazzar. It's really obvious that chapters two and seven are parallel, three and six are parallel, and four and five are parallel. Really obvious, intentional chiasm. That makes sense, what's happening there? Now, but notice again, chapter seven and two are parallel in this chiasm. But seven's in the second part of the book. Seven's in the apocalyptic vision part of the book. Seven's the part where Daniel has a dream and someone tells him what the vision means. Chapter two is someone else has a, a dream and Daniel tells him what it means. So all of a sudden we want to divide Daniel chapters one through 12 up by one through six and seven through 12. And we realize we actually can't do that because A, the language of Aramaic bleeds into the second part of the book. And this chiasm bleeds into the second part of the book. That, does that make sense to everyone? So here's the deal. Daniel chapter seven is one of these, it's like, what? Say what? What are you talking about? It's like, it doesn't make any sense. Wacky wild beasts with horns growing off their heads. And they're doing all these weird things. And it's like, makes no sense at all. But the answer is, if you know what chapter two is about, then you know what chapter seven is about because they're parallel to one another. So let's go to Daniel chapter four now. And Daniel chapter four, it's kind of weird that it's in the Bible because it's almost like about Nebuchadnezzar and he's like a Babylonian king. So look at verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. You're like, what's a Babylonian king writing in the Bible in the first person doing? But as soon as we realize what's going on, oh, okay, we, we kind of get it. So here's what happens. It starts off with Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging that Yahweh is great and awesome, but he actually starts off by bragging. And so I was at ease, verse four, flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful, these fantasies. And I gave orders, like, hey guys, tell me what's going on. 
Daniel 4, verse 17. Yeah, there we go. Somebody want to read Daniel 4, verse 17. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones, in order that all who live may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will and sets it or sets over it the lowliest of human beings. So here we go. We have this God is sovereign. Remember, the whole book of Daniel is about God being sovereign over the foreign kings. And here's Nebuchadnezzar having a dream and a vision that's being interpreted for him that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 25 says the same kind of thing. It says, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the, over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 32 says basically the same thing again. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's kind of the end. I'm reading the end of each one of those verses there. So what you have in this chapter then is a clash of the kingship of God against the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. And there's, I gave you a list of about eight or 10 verses where this clash is taking place. God is the most high God and the most high. And now look at verse 37. He humbles that the, uh, it says, I Nebuchadnezzar praise, exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just as he's able to humble those who walk in pride. But what happens in the dream is Nebuchadnezzar is not humble. And because he's not humble, guess what happens to him? Well, it's crazy. It becomes a beast. Yeah. 33. Well, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagles, eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Yeah. So the king becomes a beast. He becomes an animal, he becomes a beast. And then, of course, what happens is he realizes what's going on. And that's why in verse 37, he says, Ah, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. So it's a story about two kingdoms, these dueling kingdoms. Who's the sovereign one? Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is. And because of that, he becomes a beast. And then because he becomes a beast, he realizes, oh, Yahweh, you're, you're actually the one who's most high. He becomes humbled, he repents, and he's restored. Now, we won't go over this at all right now, but in chapter five, Belshazzar, I'll give you the fill in the blank a sec. Well, the fill in the blank is a beast. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a beast. Belshazzar, the story of chapter five, these are both the A, B, C. So chapter two and seven, three and six, four and five. In four, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and becomes a beast, and he repents. In chapter five, Belshazzar doesn't repent. So there's two stories about two different kings. One repents and the other doesn't repent. Now, I know this might not be clicking for your mind yet, but because we haven't gotten to Genesis chapter three, but in Genesis chapter three, the curse is going to be between the serpent and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There's going to be the kingdom that comes from the serpent and the kingdoms that come from the woman. And this is going to be the, the, the divine class throughout the entire biblical story, kingdom against kingdom. And it's the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of the world. And Daniel, of course, exemplifies this extremely well uh, that way. So let's go down to Daniel chapter seven. All right, Daniel chapter seven. And I, I promise you, we're not going to worry about all the details. We're not going to do that. We're just kind of trying to look at this chapter to illustrate this particular point, to give us an idea of going, oh, when I understand Genesis one, two, and three better, it puts the entire biblical story in a context. And now I can, from that context, I can begin to interpret the rest of the biblical story. So Daniel chapter seven has a theme and that's that God's going to defeat the unconquerable powers that oppress his people. So God's, these unconquerable powers, they, they can't be conquered. They're so powerful and they oppress God's people. So again, it's the kingdoms of the world against the kingdom of God. And these kingdoms are oppressing God's people, but they're unconquerable. I mean, what are you going to do? So Daniel chapter seven, verse three says, I saw four beasts coming up out of the sea. Ah, but what does the sea mean often? Anybody remember? Chaos. Yeah, chaos, yeah. The sea can have a number of different meanings, but chaos. And in the, the sea, is, yeah, and it can be the abyss. In the sea is the Leviathan. In the sea are these creatures that were made by God, but they're fearsome creatures. And when you see a beast coming up out of the sea, you're thinking, uh-oh, it's coming up out of the pit of hell, out of, out of the abyss, out of the sea, out of chaos. This is not good. 
So uh, somebody want to read now verses three, Daniel chapter seven, verses four through, let's do four through eight. And trust me, you won't understand a lick of it, but that's okay. The, 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 the context of what's being told is, gonna, is what's going to be important. I can. The first was like a lion, but had wings of, the, of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and set up on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up to one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said this to it, Arise, devour much meat. After I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the previous horns were plucked out before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like a human, like human eyes, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Thank you. Had a little crisis in the background. I had to stop. So very good. So here we go. We got four great beasts. They're bizarre, they're mutant, they're horrific. Uh, they're, it's like, okay, this is evil. What, what's going on here? Uh, turn for a second, if you will, kind of keep your finger in Daniel 7, but turn to Ezekiel 29. E and it's the next book over, just to the left. Ezekiel 29. And note that Pharaoh, Ezekiel, I'm sorry, uh, 29 verse 3. Ezekiel 29 verse 3. Somebody want to read Ezekiel 29 verse 3? I'm there. Thank you. Speak and that speak and say this says the Lord God. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The great dragon sprawling in the midst of its channels, saying, "My Nile is my own. I made it for myself." Ah, I like the translation, the, uh, the great dragon, because my translation just says a monster. I'm not sure. Anybody else have something different? What do you guys have? Monster. Monster. Okay. So Pharaoh is a beast. These beast creatures are foreign kings and foreign empires. And they're opposing the people of God. Now, obviously, the point of that is, is this is against, this is the opposite of Genesis. God made creatures according to their kind. And these are creatures that are mutant creatures. This is not very good at all. And so let's continue reading. Now, Daniel chapter 7, we're going to skip down to verse 17. Obviously, we're not going to get the whole chapter in our head here. But Daniel 7, uh, verse, uh, well, look, no, no verse 15, by the way. I, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And his visions were alarming me. And I asked, like, what's the meaning of all this? Remember, in, in the second part of Daniel, Daniel has a vision and he doesn't know what it means. So somebody else has to tell him. So somebody want to read, somebody want to read verse 17. I can. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Ah, there you go. So now we're told. That's the first fill in the blank. They represent four kingdoms that arise over the earth. They represent four kingdoms that arise over the earth. So beasts are kingdoms, but you're like, wait a minute, Adam and Eve were made to be kings and queens. And now the beasts are kings and queens. This is the opposite of creation. This is anti-creation. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to rule over the beasts, and now the beasts are ruling over us. Now, if we keep on reading, let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 18 through 21. Somebody want to read Daniel 7, 18 through 21. Thanks. But the right, saints right. of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed and trampled down the remainder with his, its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates, kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. All right. Until good. the ancient... Of, okay. That's fine. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right, so here we go. So we have these four beasts, and we know are four kings. 
In verse 18, the saints of the highest one, that's just the people of God, just Jews, Christians, wherever you, I like saying people of God because it makes it simple. God's people, they will receive a kingdom and they'll possess the kingdom forever. So that's kind of, the, that's like, spoiler alert. Let me tell you about the end of the story already. Here you go. The saints win. They get the kingdom and they get it forever. But in the meantime, it was like, well, okay, well, what's the meaning about that fourth beast? Because the fourth beast was like, we didn't keep reading, but if you go to verses 11 and 12, the fourth beast, the fourth beast was had boastful words, which where the horn was speaking, uh, that beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. This fourth beast is like the, the worst of them all. And it's got 10 horns and it's 10 horns out of great boasts. In verse uh, eight, it says a mouth uttering great boasts. In verse 11, a mouth uttering great boasts. And in verse 20, a mouth uttering great boasts. So it's Nebuchadnezzar again. It's a king saying, I'm the king. I'm the sovereign one. I'm the arrogant one. I'm the, I am who I am. And God's going to have to humble them because the Lord God's the most high. So we kind of already have an idea from Daniel 4 what's supposed to happen here. Now, so the saints then receive the kingdom, but here's what happens. Daniel says, I want to know about the fourth beast. Like what's going on with that? And look what he says about the fourth beast. It had teeth of iron. I'm in the middle of verse 19. And it had claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And when you're doing a study like what I'm trying to show you now, you, this is when we need a good translation that at least going to be consistent. So I love the message translation. I think it's a great translation. I recommend it to somebody today. Yeah, get your daughter a, a message Bible. But if you're going to study just be careful because the message translation is doing a great job of telling you what it means, but it's not concerned with, with accuracy to the original text in terms of the original text. It's more concerned with accuracy to the modern English translation now. So if does anybody have something different than trampled down the remainder with its feet? I can look at my... I have a uh, stamped. Okay, stamped. All right, so just kind of mark that word, whatever word you have. Oh, I'm sorry, it's verse 19. 19. No, it's not verse 19. So devoured, let's see. Uh, ESV says it uh, broke into pieces and stamped. Trampled, NIV, New Living Translation says trampling. So whatever that word is, uh, mark it down. Here we go, verse 21. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, or in the Greek would be conquering them. So what's happening? You got four beasts and they're four kingdoms. And what do they do? They wage war against God's people because the Bible is a story about dueling kingdoms. The kingdoms of, the, of God or the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of the world. What do we know about the kingdoms of the world? Well, they decide right and wrong for themselves. They chose to listen to the serpent and to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, meaning they decide what's good and bad by themselves. And this is what I've been saying for the last year and a half for those of you that have been in our study all that long. What the kingdoms of the world do is they decide what's good or bad based on those who are in power. It almost always services those in power. They use military might. They use prosperity and wealth. And it's often at the expense of everybody else or whoever that everybody else might be. This is the way the kingdoms of the world work. And so they decide what's good and bad based on what's going to keep them in power. God's kingdom, however, is where God makes the rules. Now, we haven't gone that far in our Genesis study, but we noted earlier that the psalmist says, you alone, O Lord, know everything. And so you're the only one that can actually make a decision of what's good and bad. Hmm. So that's why the kingdoms of the world make poor decisions, because they don't know enough to make these decisions. So that's what's hey, happening you, here in Daniel 7. Does somebody have a question? Yep. Yeah. Can I backtrack for a minute? Please. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in Joseph's story, actually, I'm jumping ahead in Genesis for that matter, yeah, but okay. um, in Joseph's story, when he's in Egypt, if I recall the verbiage, there's only 70 Jews remaining in the world at that time. So we're looking at that battle or this battle in a really profound sense at that time, right? Because that's it. Either they're going to survive or, or the lineage is broken. Well, you could, yes. You're talking about if you, if you took the battle of Daniel 7 and put it back in the time of Joseph, you're saying, yeah, that's what's going on then? Right. In yeah. So, and what you're going to see in the book of Genesis then is this promise constantly under threat. So the promise is going to be of land and family because God, remember, God's going to dwell among them. That's the whole point, right? He creates a garden where he dwells in the midst of the garden and he calls Adam and Eve into that garden presence. Well, Adam and Eve fail, they get kicked out of the garden presence. Okay, Abraham, well, Noah is going to be the next one. And then 
It looks like Noah is going to be successful, but then Noah fails too. And then Abraham, okay, you come here. And the promise of Genesis is going to be the promise of land and family. The, the family is going to be the people among whom I'm going to dwell. And you're going to bless all the nations and you're going to fill the earth. And the land is going to be the place where you're going to dwell. And I'll dwell in your midst there. And so when Abraham goes, you know, that's my sister and offers his wife up to King Abimelech, well, you're now threatening the family because if Abimelech has a child through, or if Sarah gets pregnant, how do we know if it's Abraham's child or Abimelech's child? And you're threatening the promise. Lot comes with Abraham, you know, earlier in the story, Lot comes with Abraham. Well, what's that mean? Well, there's not enough room for both of them. And so Lot's a threat to the land. It's, the whole story is playing out of this threat to land or threat to family or threat to both. And how, and of course, every time we think, oh, someone's going to be faithful and that's going to be the one through whom God, that's the seed of the woman. We're waiting for the seed to come. And then it's, well, it's Joseph. Oh, no, it's not Joseph. Oh, okay. Well, then it's Moses. Oh, no, it's not Moses. Okay. Then it's Solomon. Oh, no, it's not Solomon. And I, we might even do Solomon next week. We'll see how, how it goes. That's this biblical narrative of just continuously playing out. So very good, Anthony. Yep. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. So here we go. So it's waging war against the, against the people of God. Now, if you want to skip down, we'll just kind of look at the end of the chapter and kind of, oh, guess what? Guess what happens? Here's what happens. Uh, verse uh, 23. Uh, does somebody want to read? Let's go ahead and just do the rest of the chapter, then we'll move on to Revelation 13. 23 through 28. I got it. Thank you. This is what he said. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth that shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law. And they shall be given into his power for a time, two times, and half a time. Then the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatest of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here the account ends. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts greatly terrified me and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter in my mind. And now what's happening, right, is we were told verse 17, the four beasts are four kings. This, verse 18 was our spoiler, spoiler alert. Oh, guess what happens? The saints of the kingdom receive a kingdom that will never end. Verse 22, which we skipped, was the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. And no problem. And then 23 says, okay, let me go back. By the way, it's not going to become easy. See, Daniel says like in verse 28, I'm terrified. Well, why is he terrified? If the saints inherit the kingdom that lasts forever, why is he terrified? Because there's kings that are beasts and they're waging war against God's people. And what, in verse 21, they overpowered them. They trampled on them. So yeah, God's people eventually win, but only after they've gone through this intense time of suffering. And then they come out at the end of it. And guess what? Oh, guess what? Verse 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms of the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints, the highest one. Oh, yeah, we win. Yeah, we win. But that's what Dan's like. Uh, this is, I'm not sure I like this story. Yeah, the ending's great, but I know what happens before the ending, and it's not really good. So does that make sense a little bit here? We kind of just dabbled briefly in the story of Daniel 7 to simply say, hey, look, Daniel 7 is telling you about four beasts that are four kings. It's the opposite of Genesis. It's anti-creation in the sense that the beasts are ruling over humanity instead of humanity ruling over the beasts. And they're trampling on the saints of, and God's people. But eventually God says, you know what? I'll establish my kingdom. And of course, we know the New Testament, right? We kind of know how the story plays out. Oh, it's Jesus comes along. He's victorious. God's people suffer a little bit after that because he sends his Holy Spirit after he sends to heaven. And then eventually Christ comes back and all is fine and dandy and we win. 
pick out Dan. So Revelation chapter 13 now. Dun, dun, dun. And as soon as you see people take Revelation 13, which is kind of your like, in popular parlance, it's the key chapter in the book of Revelation. It's not, but it actually is the way it becomes interpreted in the, in the modern day world. What happens is, is they fail to, to connect Daniel 13, um, Revelation 13 to Daniel chapter 7, which is connecting it to Daniel chapter 2, which we didn't discuss, which is connecting it to the Genesis and the creation account. So let's begin verse 1 and verse 2. Does somebody want to read Revelation 13 verses 1 and 2? I'll get it. Thank you. NIV. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its, on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, and his throne, and great authority. All right. Now, if we just stop for a second, we go... Hey, I've heard all that before. And in fact, if you keep going through verse eight, and we might be able to do that, you're going to continue to go, I've heard that before. And where you've heard that before is Daniel 7. So what you see, Revelation 13 is a composite of the four beasts of Daniel 7. In other words, it's one beast. He only sees one beast. And in Daniel 7, he saw four beasts. But when you take the description of the four beasts in Daniel 7, they're all present in this one beast of Revelation chapter 13. For example, it has 10 horns and seven heads. Well, in Daniel, you had one of the horse, one of the beasts had 10 horns. So all four Daniel's beasts combined had 10 horns because the first three didn't have any horns. But the fourth one has 10 horns. Then the first three beasts have three heads. But the fourth beast has four heads, a total of seven heads. And you're realizing, oh, it's got the seven heads and the 10 horns of the four beasts combined. And then you look and go, well, it's like a leopard. It's got a feet like a bear and its mouth is like, mouth like, like the mouth of a lion. That's the first three beasts of Daniel 7. One was a leopard, one was a bear, one was a lion. And this one beast is kind of like a leopard, kind of like a bear, and kind of like a lion. It's, it's a composite combining all four beasts into this one I know it's into this one beast where John gets his imagery of this one beast is by taking the attributes of all four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 and combining them but what were the beasts in Daniel chapter 7 I don't know what's let me ask it this way what is this beast you already you already know the answer the satan well no it's not the satan and we're going to get to that in a minute though very good if you're kingdom? reflecting it back to Daniel 7, it's a king or a kingdom. Yeah, exactly. Because the four beasts were four kings. So that makes this one beast, it's a king. And it's a king that combines all the characteristics of the previous four beasts. Now, what happens with people, what they try to do is they go, and, and that totally makes sense why people do it. They try to say, well, what kingdom is it? Right? Some people go, oh, this is ancient Rome of John's day. Some say, oh no, it's a future Rome of our day. It's the European economic community and it has 10 horns. So when there's 10 nations in the, Europe, in the, in the EU, then we know that this is going to be it and Satan's going to come. It's like, okay, stop, you know, way too far. But what happened, what, what probably is taking place is it's simply all the kingdoms of the world combined into one. In other words, four in apocalyptic literature is a common number for the world. There's four corners of the earth. There's four winds. So four is very, and if we went to the book of Revelation, I could show you this like a hundred places. The number four is very common number for creation. Mm. And so if there's four beasts, well, they might actually in the book of Daniel, and I have no problem with this. In the book of Daniel, they appear to actually be four different kingdoms. And people debate on who the four kingdoms are, but Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and where do we go? But they're four different kingdoms. But in Revelation 13, it's one kingdom with the attributes of all four of them. Maybe this one kingdom is all the kingdoms of the world. Because what was happening in Daniel 7? All the kingdoms of the world were waging war against God's people. It wasn't just like one kingdom that waged war against God's people. All the kingdoms of the world waged war against God's people. 
So perhaps, and this is my opinion, perhaps the four kingdoms of Daniel 7 represent all the kingdoms of the world. And they're waging war against God's people. It's the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And in Daniel 7, he's taking the imagery, I'm sorry, in Revelation 13, he's taking the imagery from Daniel 7 and combining them together and going, ah, guess what? But he adds a key feature now. And that key feature in Revelation 13 that's added, that's like clarified for us is at the end of verse two, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And the dragon is who? It's who? Yeah, it tells you in the previous chapter. So just go back one more chapter. And if you look at verse seven, eight, and nine, some of you want to read Revelation 12, seven, eight, and nine. Oh, continue. Okay, thanks, John. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. All right, so we're told, we know the dragon is the serpent of old, or the devil and Satan. And note the, the language, the serpent of old places him in the garden. So that reminds us, this is the great cosmic battle from Genesis 3, which we haven't actually gotten to in our study yet, but we know what's coming, playing out in history. So this beast is empowered by the dragon. He gets his, his power, throne, and great authority from the dragon. Now let's keep reading in Daniel, I'm sorry, in Revelation 13. Let's continue to read a little bit more. And then and the question I'm going to ask you is, what did you hear in the verses that we're about to read? that reminded you of, of Daniel chapter 7? What did you hear in these verses that reminded you of Daniel chapter 7? So see if anybody can find anything there. So let's look at verses 3 through verse 8. Revelation 13, 3 through 8, if somebody wants to read that. I'll read it. I saw, and this is the NACD. That's fine. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wounds was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage a war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb, who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the per perseverance and the faith of the saints. Anything stand out from Daniel chapter 7 that you noticed here in the words of, of Revelation 13? That's boastful words. Yes, boastful words. We know that I think three times in Daniel 7, the little horn has boastful words. Nebuchadnezzar had boastful words and God made him a beast and then he repented. Belshazzar had boastful words and he didn't repent. And so God destroyed him the next day. Right? So now uh, this beast has boastful words and it's the same phrase. It's, it's clearly borrowed from uh, Daniel chapter 7. Somebody else. Wage war with the saints. Yes. He wages war with the saints. And if you've been in our Revelation study, you might note, of course, in verse seven, it says, and he's able to overcome them. That's the famed word in the book of Revelation, to overcome. Like, wait a minute. I thought we were called to be the ones who overcome, and now the beast overcomes us? Oh, that's why Daniel was like, I don't know that I like this. He was troubled, even though he knew the end of the story. Hey, we win. It's like, yeah, well, I'm not sure I like the way we win. Uh, very well. Anybody else? 
we skipped earlier in the past. Well, we already mentioned a couple of them, right? The 10 horns, the seven heads, and the 10 crowns. We mentioned that. We mentioned the leopard, lion, and, uh, and bear. And we didn't mention, but we noted in verse one that he comes out, of, the beast comes up out of the sea. Remember the four beasts in Daniel 7 come up out of the sea. And uh, let's see. I think the only other thing is, he speaks blasphemous words. The only thing, of course, is that the object of, of his blasphemies is God. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. So very good. So there, there's what's happening in, in Revelation 13. It's the beasts ruling over humanity and doing what? O opposing God's people and persecuting them. But eventually God's people are the ones who become victorious. Any questions? We, we, we mowed through. I thought this was going to take like two weeks to get, get through all this stuff. That was great. <laughs> we got like 10 minutes left to spare. So how was the ball game the other day, guys? Okay, no, just kidding. Uh, anybody have any questions or comments? I got a couple more thoughts, but that's about it. I looked at it from the perspective of chain of command. There's always okay. one figurehead and he's delegating all that responsibility. So to me, and I, and I understand what you're having us go and breaking it down. Yeah. But if the Satan is distributing all this authority to the individual beasts, which are then in turn coming down to the human beings, he's still in control of this war overall. Ah, and that actually makes a really good distinction that we, that we would be seriously remiss if we, if we passed over it. What happens too much in Christianity is we look at things or people as us, them. I'm on God's side. I hope you are too. Oh, you're not. Oh, bummer. It's us, them. Jesus comes along and says, uh, no, no, we don't do this us, them thing. The story of Jesus is, hey, I know you guys are Israel, God's chosen people, but sorry, God loves the nations too. That's the whole point of calling Abraham was to bless all the nations. And Rome's not your enemy. What do you mean Rome's not our enemy? Rome is the last line of emperor empires that have oppressed God's people from Egypt to Assyria, to Babylon, to Persia, to the Medes, to the Greeks, to the Romans. 2,000 years of oppression under foreign entities. And now you're like, they're not the enemy? And she's like, no, I'm going to die for them too. And so in the book of Revelation, you have this, in, this odd, um, uh, what's Juxtaposition. Yeah, all right, this juxtaposition, that, that'll be a sufficient word where the nations are empowered by the beast or by the dragon. They make war against God's people. They persecute them, overcome them, and kill them. And yet at the same time, the nations are the ones to whom we are to love. We are to love them and lay down our life and sacrifice our life for them. In fact, when they kill us and we faithfully persevere lovingly for them, that's when they actually come to follow Christ. Right? The great irony of the book of Revelation for modern-day uh, modern interpreters is that they think, oh, the book of Revelation is about God's wrath. Yeah, God, you know, punish Rome because of what they did to the Christians. Yeah, God, you know, bring fire down on those people because of what, what they did. Yeah, bring them an earthquake now. How about some boils? How about plagues? Go get them, God. And then the nations don't repent. Oh, well, bummer for you. You should have repented, but we're okay. You're going to go to the lake of fire, but I'm going to go to the new Jerusalem. I'm, I'm good. You should be like me. It's like, that's the last thing I want to do right now is be like an arrogant person like you. But anyways, that's not what's happening in the book of Revelation. What's happening in the book of Revelation is the, 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 persecu the, um, the plagues, the boils, the, the rivers becoming blood, the earth, earthquakes is what happens when humanity's in power. When we decide what's right and wrong, we make wars. And we're getting prepared, by the way, for, as we discussed last week, a famine that could be significant famine because of what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. And that's what happens when we make the rules. That's how we rule. And God's answer is, yeah, that doesn't bring the, the nations to, rep to repentance either. It'd be nice if you guys realize, yeah, you know what? We really messed this up, Lord. We need your help. But they, we won't do that. But then when God's people enter the story and say, Hey, let's show you a peaceful way. Let's show you a way that makes peace and harmony for everyone. No, no, we don't like those kind of people because you guys irritate us. Of course, those in power say that. And they persecute and oppose and they, they actually trample. And we, I can look, we can show the word trample in the book of Revelation here in a second. They trample and tread on God's people. God's people willingly suffer for them. And then the nations say, you know what? I think those are the good people. I think, I think that's the right side. And they repent and give glory to the God of heaven. And of course, to flush all that out tonight, we wouldn't have time for it. But that's the storyline in the book of Revelation that's happening there. So the nations 
are indeed the opponents of the kingdom of God, but they're empowered by the dragon. And we're not to look at them as our enemies. We're to look at them as those for whom Christ died also, so that we can love them and serve them because, well, we used to be one of them too, right? Before the spirit opened up our eyes. So I think that's an important caveat to kind of throw into the story. Make sense? Questions, comments? You guys like know the whole Bible now. I mean, like, there's nothing else to say. There's no need for a class next week or the week after. Just like, just keep listening to this podcast over and over and over again. And you've got it all. If there's a test to get into the New Jerusalem, you know all the answers. So uh, let me show you two verses. What's that? I do have a question. Yes. Um, Maybe you're coming to it, but you said to hold, hold in the background the birds being in the shade oh oh thank you i skipped uh, so can you remind me in just a second let's finish revelation we forgot to look at that in chapter uh in the book of daniel so oops sorry Uh, that's the answer is in daniel so let's go to revelation 11 for a quick second middle of verse one revelation 11 verse one i'm gonna start in the middle of the verse he said rise and measure the temple of god that it's us it's it's people don't it's not a building it's us i'm just going to give it to you simple the measure, the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. So it's us. It's the people of God are being measured for divine protection. But leave out, verse 2, the court which is outside the temple, and don't measure it because it's been given to the nations, and they will trample, and a New American says this tread, but it's trample, trample underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Ah, that's us. The people of God are going to be trampled on for 42 months. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 4. 14 and oh this is kind of getting i'm getting off track a little bit but that's okay uh revelation 14 verse 20 this is it's i'm in the middle of another story but to take the time to tell you what's happening in revelation 14 will take too long it says the wine press was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles what's happening in chapter 14 is because you trampled on the people of god God will trample on those in, on the rest in judgment. That's assuming that they haven't repented because that's the whole goal is that they repent. But this is the end times, the last day, the final judgment. And if they haven't repented, they're going to be trampled on. So that's that word trampled that we we're paying attention to earlier. Okay, now let's go to Daniel. Daniel 4. The, score, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, we skipped over it. Uh, his, his vision. Ezekiel, Daniel, Daniel 4. So let's see, Daniel 4, verse, uh, it's his vision. Uh, verse uh, 9, O Belshazzar, uh, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. That's, the, that's his name for Daniel. Uh, tell me the visions, what's going on here. And uh, let's see. Yeah, verse 10. I was looking and behold, um, Daniel chapter 4, verse 10. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Verse 11. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was, and it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under, its, under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Jesus tells us that this tree is the kingdom of God. And that reminds us of what tree? The tree of life. It's got to be, right? It's the tree, because what's happening? It reaches to the sky. Remember, the tree of life was on the top of a mountain, and that's where heaven and earth came down together. That's where heaven and earth meet, is at the top of the mountain, in the middle of the garden with the tree of life. It's, it's the tree of life. And so... Oh, and guess what's going to happen to the tree of life? It's going to become so large that all the birds will nest on its branches. And the birds are the nations. That's why, going back to what Anthony, uh, earlier, it's, it's the nations coming to know uh, Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, don't expect to remember all that, but what I hope that you got was that the imagery of the scriptures is carrying forth a storyline. That storyline is, that God is sovereign, that he makes the rules because he knows all things and let him decide what's good and, not, what's good and bad. 
And when we submit to him, we're acknowledging that you are the one in power and the one who knows all things. But instead we said, you know what? We're going to make our own rules. Our own rules are for our own power, for our own privilege, our own wealth and prosperity. And typically those in power make those rules and the, everyone underneath them are the ones who suffer, depending on the nature of, of the enterprise, who, who it is who suffers. And I'll throw one last thing out. The parable of, Matthew, of Mark 4 that we didn't go over, but we've been over before, or the parable of the soils. There's four soils. Some seed fell upon the good soil. Some, feeds, some seed fell upon the rocks. Some fell upon the thorns and some fell upon the roadside. Well, the roadside, the bird snatched it away. And he tells us the bird is the devil. Well, so other soil, other seed fell upon the thorns, but the worries of life and power and riches and comfort choked it away and it, it, it withered and didn't bear any fruit. The seed fell among the stones. Well, it bore a plant too, but then of course it was shallow and the sun withered it and they were afraid of persecution and suffering and they fell away also. The good soil had stones and thorns, but it bore fruit anyways. And the reason why I remind us of that, I'm still totally convinced, I've been saying this for 10 years or more now, totally convinced that that's the paradigm through which we should understand kingdoms, power, the biblical story. That the biblical story is a story of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. We now know that the kingdoms of the world are uh, empowered by the dragon. They are opposed to God's people. They wage war against God's people. They blaspheme God. They trample on God's people. But because God's people faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially serve them and love them, eventually it leads to the conversion of those nations. In the meantime, of course, the way the kingdoms of the world operate is, well, they want power, wealth, comfort, securities. That's the thorns. They want a world where there's no thorns. And they want a world where there's no stones, no persecution and suffering. And I say that because we also, you see, it's so easy to hear this story today and, or tonight or this tomorrow morning, wherever you might be, and go, we're the good guys. We're on team Jesus. We're the ones who are being trampled on. And we're going to, and I'm, I'm now going to resolutely set my mind to be, to suffer well for the sake of the nations and even pray for the nations. That's all good. But we have to be reminded that oftentimes in the church or in our own lives, we do what? We compromise for the sake of comfort, power, wealth, prosperity. We don't like the thorns. Or we compromise because of we don't like the stones. And I think that explains church history. I think that explains the New Testament. I think that explains our life. And I think it absolutely explains the current state of the American church. Because we're wealthy and powerful and prosperous. And then we've justified that because God must be blessing us. And we don't recognize the fact that we got that power, wealth, and prosperity at the hands and at the expense of somebody else. Because you, the rich young ruler, you can't get this rich without somebody else paying for it. So that's my political anecdote for the evening. If you want to comment on that, feel free to. Otherwise, we'll finish on that. Any thoughts, comments? Snide remarks? Before you went into your last statements there, um, and you were talking about the, um, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man uh, and uh, this power of the kings and the rulers being given their authority or powers from Satan, that's exactly what we're seeing today, 2,000 yeah. years later, or yeah. more than 2,000 now. I mean, yeah. Let me also make sure I clarify this too. I'm not saying that therefore all kingdoms are inherently evil. I'm not saying that. There, there are kings, presidents, queens, dictators that oftentimes have good objectives, that they, they might desire to do good things, and do, they still desire to keep themselves in power, and they still do things at the expense of others, and they still justify injustices, but they might be good people and they might have good laws. And overall, they're still going to do so at the expense, you know, even to talk about America for a second. Okay. There's a lot of good things and there's a lot of goodwill, but let's be honest. It was at the expense of the people who owned this land before we got here. We slaughtered them. 
That's how we became so prosperous. And then we said, you know what? We're going to take all the slaves from Africa and we're going to bring them here to build the, to build the infrastructure because you can only build infrastructure like this with free labor. And that's not where the injustices stop. It, it continues on. So I think we have to realize, okay, yeah, America's a good country. We have good laws, we have good modes and good ideas. Well, yeah, but we're also a country that has done gross injustices throughout our history. And we continue to do so today. All you gotta do is go to walk in any prison, just any prison in America and figure that out. So, all right, That's, I, I guess uh, I'll add another political anecdote to the, to the, to the lesson for tonight. To your point, uh, I forget where I read it. It was in one of these uh, recent treatises over the last couple of years, but um, the economy of the 13 colonies after the slave trade was in its full height and something in the ballpark of 15, $56 billion in those days dollars. Hmm. So that gave us a huge amount of income to get to where we are. So yeah. Right. Yeah. And let's think about this for a second. If the northern states and for those of you guys in India, right, we have slavery in the southern states of the United States at the time. Westward expansion hadn't quite happened yet. The northern states were uh, free states. And the whole idea was as a civil war breaks out in the 1860s uh, over slavery, we, you know, abolishing slavery. Well, the southern states are thinking, even if you're a good person who goes, you know, I don't believe that hype. I don't believe that the people of color are not human beings. I think they are human beings. I think they're equal of value to everybody else. We want to end slavery. We can't afford to. I mean, that's just the bottom line. They couldn't afford to end it. Because if they end slavery, their economy drops. What do they do? You're going to pay all these people now. You, where are we going to get the money? Well, that means my lifestyle is going to change. And I don't know if I want to stop my lifestyle. And so you have this economic factor that says, I want to stop this, but I can't without great sacrifice. And I don't know that I want to make that sacrifice. Are we willing to make that sacrifice so that others may have prosperity also? And I think that's the question the church has to answer first. So I have a question for you, Rob. Mm -hmm. So what do you, how do you sit with the phrase a rising tide lifts all boats? It doesn't. So I, what, I mean, uh, so I'm not in a, I'm not a sociologist, uh, right? But as I look at scripture and through that paradigm, I then study history. I go, yeah, it doesn't lift all boats. A rising tide a lot of boats sink. Yeah, go ahead. And is that because of human, the human nature of greed and power? Because, I, so. it, I mean, it just doesn't. Yeah. I mean, By the way, the rising tide lifts all boats is a true metaphor if, if you're applying it to oceans and, and boats. But if you're applying it to, to, to social factors, no. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Helen. Well, I, maybe under God's kingdom, it would in a fair and just kingdom where yes. he, where there isn't greed, where there is kindness and we're looking out for each other. Right. Then yes. In an ideal. Right. Yeah. The yeah, ideal. Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> when a boat sets out of water, it deteriorates and it's not lift every boat. Oh, oh interesting. All right. Very good. I'll, I'll give you another quick anecdote if you want, unless somebody else has a comment. Your, uh, your, your guest last week on the podcast, Warren, spoke to that. He spoke specifically to that. Yes, thing. that's right, because I asked him that question. That Yes, yeah. So if you listen to the podcast, I quoted a biblical scholar who says, oh, well, Rome, you know, really actually lifted up everybody. I'm like, okay. So I had Warren Carter on, who's a preeminent biblical scholar on in Roman, in Roman Empire. I'm like, okay, hey, let me read you this quote, Warren. What do you think of this? He's like, it's just not true. I'm like, yeah, I didn't think so. Um, but uh, so... I had a meeting today for, I'm, I'm on the leadership team for the network of evangelicals for the Middle East. Most of you know about the work I do in Israel, Palestine and the Middle East. And what's happened in the last two to three years is major international human rights organizations. Uh, what do you call them? Amnesty International, whatever you call Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, major organizations that are, that are international organizations have come out in the last two to three years to say, Israel is an apartheid state. It has two sets of laws, one that benefits the Jewish people and one that is totally to the detriment of the Palestinian people. So this has been the talk. It's been, it's been in the talk for like 10 years, but people are like, it's not a good conversation. It's not a healthy conversation. It's gonna lead to anti-Semitism. Don't go down that path. But things are continuing to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse for the Palestinian people. So much so that they said, we have nothing else to say other than it is an apartheid state. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we justify anti-Semitism back to the Jewish people. It's not their fault. It's the government. We need to stop this. So now the question is, what do we as evangelical leaders do? Do we go ahead and say, you know what? You're right. It's an apartheid state. So we're doing some seminars probably in the month of August. I think was our discussion today. There'll be three, three weeks in a row we're putting on these seminars to discuss, is Israel an apartheid state? How does that work? What are the legal definitions of apartheid? How does, what, what's the situation on the ground in Israel-Palestine that would lead someone to say it's an apartheid state? Is it a good thing to use that language or not use that language? And so I commented, and I'll probably present a little bit in the very first of our, of our webinars and said, you know, I think that before we stop and say Israel's an apartheid state, looking over there, we need to look at ourselves because we've been in apartheid state for 400 years when you consider what we've done to the, to the people of color. We had two sets of laws and they couldn't vote. They couldn't do this. They could, they're three-fifths of a person. They can't do this. We have been in an apartheid state for a long time. And until we acknowledge our own sin, we should not point the sin on somebody else out. Now, and someone came back and said, well, Rob, are you saying that, you know, if you're saying that, then we just can never point the sins to somebody else out. I'm like, no, no, no. We have to acknowledge our own sin first. I think we have to grieve over it. I think we have to lament it. And then I think we can move forward and say, okay, and now, by the way, I took the log out of my own eye. Uh, Israel's an apartheid state. And how do we frame that conversation? And what do we, what do, we do with that? So uh, I, I think that's an anecdote that is relevant to this conversation. So anybody else? <clears throat> Everyone's spirits were like so uplifted now with this conversation. No, it's good. I think it's, I was driving yesterday thinking, you know, Soon Chan Ra and uh, Mark Charles wrote a book. And, and I, by the way, I've read that book, Anthony. So I was listening to, your, to that podcast yesterday. And I was thinking about uh, Anthony sh shared a podcast, podcast with me yesterday. And I was thinking, you know, I acknowledge the sins of our country, of the church, because the church was totally complicit in all of the sins of racism and segregation and everything else. We've just, we were in the middle of it. We're just using the Bible to justify slavery and segregation and everything else. But I want to move from that to go to repentance and say, okay, great, now let's fix the problem. And, I, and Sun Chan Ra's a book he wrote prior to the book that Anthony was talking to me about yesterday was a prophetic lament. I'm like, I don't want to lament. I'd rather just, I want to move from like repentance to like fixing the problem. And I just realized, you know, I get caught in the, in the wake of saying, I just want to move too quickly to, to move moving on. And maybe we need to stop in this lament time and just have this period of lament. And so I think that's something to, to consider as well. It's, it's very biblical. That's what the book of Lamentations and a lot of the, a lot of the uh, books, of, a lot of the Psalms are about as well. Is that there, we need to stop and actually, first off, acknowledge our sins and our complicity. And what I mean by that is, I'm not saying that I was ever racist. I'm just saying I've been a part of this system and I'm a part of the church. And we, the church, have been racist. We, the church, have been complicit in injustice. Well, we got two brothers in from India right now on the call. We have been imperialists, right? We have done things to foreign countries and we need to stop and go, yeah, I need to own that and then repent and maybe even lament and then let's go move forward, so. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.